You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Today's reading is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. That's Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked round and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God! The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Uh, my name is Ralph, I'm one of the leaders here at City Church, <clears throat> and uh, my, my job is to, to bring that section of Scripture to you and to, to think through together with you what is God saying to us today here in Mark chapter 10. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Father God, thank you so much that your word is living and active. We come before you needy. We come before you weak. We come before you because we can't and you can. So Lord, we ask, speak to us. Revive our souls. Bring us life in Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, I'm really sorry I wasn't here uh, last Sunday. Uh, I was actually speaking at a church planters summit in 
Florida, sunny Florida. I know you're feeling really sorry for me being away for a week in Florida. Not only was there sun and sea, it was an incredible privilege to spend a week with church planters from all around the world. But on the flight out to the States, um, I had to find a movie to watch. I was really struggling, and so I decided to watch the latest installment in the Indiana Jones series, The Dial of Destiny. It's a classic. But the thing, the thing that I realized was that basically every Indiana Jones film is exactly the same. Whether it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Temple of Doom, the Silver Skull, the Last Crusade, every single one, they're on a quest to find true life, the, the meaning of life. And I guess the reason why every Indiana Jones film has that central theme is because it resonates with something deep down in each of our hearts. We're living on this spinning globe in one of two trillion galaxies in the universe, and we're left asking the question, well, well, what am I here for? What comes next? How do I get life beyond the here and now, eternal life? Well, that was the exact question that this man asked in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. The parallel account in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, it tells us that this man was young, and Luke's account tells us this man was a ruler. So sometimes this man is spoken about as being the rich, young ruler. No doubt he was suave, sophisticated. You know, the sort of person who lives in Deansgate Square, Yeah. And if you looked at him, you'd say, he has absolutely everything. He's sorted. He is together. But he didn't feel that way. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this rich young ruler, he realized that at the most fundamental level, he was lacking something, something eternal. Now, we hear that word eternal, and we immediately think in terms of time. And perhaps when you hear that, when you hear about eternal life, you think, oh goodness, I'm not sure I really want that. I'm not sure I really want life that goes on forever and ever and ever. But this concept of eternal life in the Bible is really quite different. It's not just about the the quantity of life. It's about the quality of life, too. We live in a world that's broken. I mean, the news over the past week has made this completely obvious to us. We live in a world where we both do harm and harm is done to us where we experience sadness and where we make others sad, where we experience loneliness and we make other people feel unloved. Eternity of that, well, that's not very appealing, is it? But what this man is asking about in verse 17 is really different. 
an eternity of true life, of deep, lasting, perpetual satisfaction in God's presence. Receiving the kingdom, that's how it's described in verse 15. And today we're going to think about that. We're going to think about receiving eternal life, and we're going to ask three things. Firstly, how do you receive it? Secondly, what are the blocks that stop you from receiving it? And then thirdly, how can it change you? So first up, how do you receive it? And that's verses 13 to 16. You see, verse 13, people bring little children to Jesus. Now, something you need to know to understand what's happening here is that children were viewed very differently in the first century to the way they're viewed today. I mean, today... Children hold a high status in our society, don't they? We, we consider children to be the future. They're to be valued and to be protected. But back in the first century, they were viewed as more of a liability. It wasn't just that they were to be seen but not heard, like in Victorian times. They were a burden. They were a mouth to feed. They were a dowry to be paid. And because of the high rates of infant mortality, it was actually a real risk. They wouldn't even pay you back for that. So politicians, they didn't kiss babies in the first century. That was beneath them. And nor should Jesus, so his disciples thought. But look at how Jesus replies. Verse 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Is he saying that the kingdom of God, eternal life, insatiable joy with Jesus belongs to children? Well, some people think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Indeed, that's the reason why these verses are found at the very start of the Anglican infant baptism service, saying that the kingdom is for little children, like the baby being baptized. And it is true that Jesus welcomes little children, which means that age is never a barrier to coming to Jesus. But notice, Jesus says in verse 14, such as these, not all of these. And just look at how he continues. Verse 15, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now that's interesting. It's interesting because it tells you that what is at stake here is not the identity of those who receive eternal life. It is about how people receive eternal life. And the way, the how of receiving eternal life is to be like a little child. But but what does that mean? Well, well, perhaps it's talking about innocence. You know, children are innocent, and if you want to receive eternal life, you too must be innocent and sinless. The, The problem is that that wasn't how children were regarded in the first century. 
And actually, what's more, we're about to meet a man in our passage who is about as respectable and upright and righteous as you can possibly imagine. And yet Jesus says that he is not yet receiving eternal life. So is it that Jesus is saying that we need to become naive like children? You know, children don't know the world, they don't know science, they don't know all, all the ways that things work. And if you want to get eternal life, you need to become like that. You need to blind yourself to what's outside so that you will believe in Jesus. Is that what he's saying? People might think so. But Jesus is absolutely clear that if we are to follow him, we must weigh things up. We must count the cost. He even says that right there in verses 28 to 31. So if it's not about innocence and it's not about blind faith, what is Jesus saying when he says we must receive the kingdom like little children? Well, two things, I think. Uh, If you know me, you'll know that Anna and I, we have three children. I say they're children, they're not really children anymore. They're teenagers, they're almost bigger than I am. But when they were little children, despite their huge differences, there were a number of things that all three of them had in common. Firstly, they were dependent. What do I mean? Well, back in those days, they needed Anna and I. If we didn't feed them, they'd go hungry. If we didn't clothe them, they'd get cold. If we didn't teach them, they wouldn't learn things. They could not feed, they could not clothe, they could not teach themselves. They were utterly dependent on us. They needed us. And that is one of the things I think Jesus is saying here. The process of growing up as a human being is all about moving from a state of radical dependence to a state of radical independence. From needing others to being self-sufficient. And that is a good thing. It is a good thing that Sophie, who's now nearly 17, if she had to, she could survive just fine on her own. Now, it breaks Anna's and my heart to think that she doesn't need us anymore, but that is the reality. She doesn't need us. She can be self-dependent. Independence is a great thing in certain spheres of life. But it is utterly crippling in our relationship with God. In fact, the Bible teaches us that a desire for independence is at the very root of what the Bible calls sin. So back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the real issue there wasn't about eating a piece of fruit. It was what the fruit symbolized. The fact that the man and woman wanted to determine for themselves what was good and what was wrong in the world. They wanted to sit on the throne of their own lives. They wanted independence from God. And that cut them off from the kingdom of God from eternal life. We need to become like children, utterly dependent on God. 
You know, there's a second thing I think that Jesus is saying here. A second way we need to become like children. Uh, when I was at theological college training to be a pastor, we'd sometimes have famous theologians come and visit the college and deliver lectures. Uh, and uh, a few times I invited these famous theologians back to our house for dinner to, to meet Anna and to meet the kids. And when they came back, I was kind of in awe. You know, these are the equivalents of, of you know, film stars if you're a pastor. And they were coming into my house. I was all very polite, very respectful, very kind of British reserved, just being careful. But my kids, who were all four or under at the time, well, they just bounded up to these famous theologians with great energy and enthusiasm as if they were meeting one of their grandparents. You see, they were confident because they were utterly focused on the person they were meeting rather than on themselves. And I think that's the other thing that Jesus is saying here. To receive eternal life, we need to let go of independence. But we also need to let go of focusing on ourselves and just look to Jesus and run confidently towards him. So that's how you get eternal life. Secondly, what blocks you from receiving it? This is the rich young ruler. Now, I think we need to pause here on verses 17 to 18. Because before I was a Christian, I sat religious education GCSE. Okay, I did really well in it, even though I wasn't a Christian. Um, and, and my RE teacher told me, and the rest of the class, that Jesus never claimed to be sinless. And if you doubt it, look at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. It's what he says right here, that he's not sinless. Well, look at those verses. The rich young ruler, he falls on his knees and calls Jesus good teacher. Now, the rich young ruler, he intends this as a, as a kind of a term of respect. He, he's treating Jesus as if he's a very esteemed rabbi. But look at how Jesus replies. Why do you call me good? Verse 18. No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying here that he is not good. He's simply saying that if he was merely a rabbi, as the man believes, then he would not be good. Because only God is good. But the question that the man is asking would be completely inappropriate for a rabbi to answer because only God can definitively tell you how you receive eternal life. Do you see? Do you see the argument? So, so the question this man is asking, it is a good question and Jesus is the right person to ask, but not because he's a rabbi, as the man suspects, but rather because he is God who is good. Does that make sense? Give me a nod. Yes, good. We'll look at how Jesus responds, having established that he's not merely a rabbi. He lists the second half of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Now, if you were with us last summer, you'll remember that we went through the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, and we saw that the first half of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 1 to four, they are all about how we relate to God, how we love God, in the words of Jesus, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. 
And then the second half, commandments 5 through to 10, are all about how we relate to one another. How we love our neighbour as ourselves. Well, well, here, in verse 19, Jesus lists commandments 5 to 10 almost exactly. And look at how the man replies. Verse 20, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, notice something. Jesus doesn't say, ah, well, that, that's not quite true, is it? You know, I'm omniscient, so I know that five years ago you received the bribe. I know that only last week you were really rude to your mum. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't challenge this man's claim to have perfectly kept commandments 5 through to 10. And nor did the disciples either. The disciples are here watching this. This man is claiming to be utterly righteous to have kept all of these commands, and they don't say a word. Both Jesus and his disciples, they acknowledge that this man was indeed a very, very good man. So look at what Jesus does. Verse 21, he looks at the man. And he loves him. Jesus' heart literally overflows with compassion towards this man. And he says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This is Jesus, the loving surgeon, taking a scalpel to this young man's soul and trying to cut out the cancer that's killing him from within. But but what is Jesus really saying to this man? What is a scalpel really trying to do? Is he saying that rich people can't inherit eternal life? Well, that can't be right, because we know that two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they were incredibly wealthy. They had a family business with lots of people working for them. And when we get to Acts chapter 16, we meet Lydia, who is a, a fabulously wealthy woman who becomes a Christian and remains fabulously wealthy. So is Jesus saying that the only way that you can receive eternal life is you give, if you give away all of your money to the poor? What, what? It is good to be generous. And it is good to give to the poor. But even when the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, decide to sell their possessions and give to the poor, they don't sell all of their possessions, just some. And Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who in Luke chapter 19 comes to faith, he merely gives away half of his possessions and gives them to the poor, and Jesus commends him for it, not all of his possessions. So that can't be it. It can't be that you can only receive eternal life if you give away all of your riches. Now, what Jesus seems to be doing here is he is putting his finger on the thing that holds this young man back. The one thing that stops him from loving God with all of his heart, mind, and soul. His money. But why? Why is money such a big deal? Well, think about what money is. Money is a good thing. You realize that money is a good thing, don't you? 
You realize that a pastor is able to say money is a good thing. When I was a university lecturer, um, I was on a good salary for my age. And it enabled me to do lots of fun things. So I could travel. Anna and I could go to some of the finest restaurants in Birmingham. When Sophie was born, we were able to spend money on kitting out a brand new nursery for her. She had the best silver cross pram available. She had a state-of-the-art bath. Now, why she needed a state-of-the-art bath, I don't know. Our bath was perfectly fine. But we had the money to buy a state-of-the-art bath. And when things went wrong, when, when a pipe burst or when the car broke down, it was no problem because we had the money to call someone out to fix it. We were in control of our present and our future. But then we went off to Bible college to train for ministry. And I became a student again. Instead of having a good salary, I had no salary. And we were entirely dependent on people giving money to support us which meant that we depended on people's gifts. They had to give us things. The kids were dressed in second-hand clothes. When the car broke down, I had to phone up a pastor friend to come around and fix it for me. And our choices of where to go and what to do, they were very limited. We had very little control, either of our present or of our future. You see, money is a good thing. It is good to have security. It is good to have control. But it also has the potential to cripple us. To bar us from eternal life. What do I mean? Well, take a look at verse 24. Jesus says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, people try to minimize this teaching. They say, well, well there, was, there was an old gate in ancient Jerusalem, and it was, called, it was called the Needle Gate. And the Needle Gate was so small that it was not possible for a camel to get through it unless, unless you took the load off of the camel and the camel got down on its knees, and then it could crawl through on its knees. So, so what Jesus is saying is that it's not impossible, it's just really, really difficult. The problem is, there is virtually no evidence of such a gate ever having existed. And the whole point of the illustration, according to Jesus in verse 27, is that with man, it is impossible to get eternal life with great riches. Not simply difficult, it is impossible. So why? Why is it impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Because money gives us control, which offers us independence, which causes us to run away from God. I mean, that was the case for the rich man, wasn't it? But you know, it doesn't have to be money. For some of us, it won't be our money, it will be our wit and our charm. That's what we rely on. We're forever trying to be the life of the party. We're forever trying to be at the center of the social circles that we're in because we know that our charm gives us control, gives us independence, gives us what we want. 
for others of us, it will be our intellect. We know that that is what makes people respect us. What opens doors, what guarantees our future. We look back and we remember those days in school when people made fun of us and called us nerds. But now the shoe's on the other foot, isn't it? Our intelligence is the very thing that gives us what we want and enables us to do the things we want to do. And the thing we fear above all else is growing old or having an accident which means that we lose our intellect. For some of us, it's our goodness, our moral probity. Just like the rich young ruler, we find ourselves able to do all the right things. Everyone always seems to be very pleased with us. Everyone at church thinks we're a very, very, very godly person. They will look up to us. And so we assume that that is true, and because of that, things should go the way we want in life. If I ask God for something, he should say yes. Because I've been faithful to him. I've been good to him. Very good. We all have something. Something that we look to to give us control. Something we look to to give us independence, to get what we want. And that thing, that thing will block you from receiving eternal life. It makes it impossible for you. Take a look at verse 22. The man's face fell, and he went away sad. Now, now sad is not quite strong enough for the word in the original. More literally, it means that he was distressed, grieved, undone. The man was utterly undone the thought of losing the very thing that he structured his life around and built his independence upon. It was impossible, verse 27, for him to give that up, to let go. What is that thing for you? My non-Christian friend, what is it that is holding you back today? My Christian friend, what is it that is blocking you from depending completely on Jesus today? Well, let's move on to our final point, which is about how eternal life will utterly change you. That's verses 28 to 31. Uh, Peter pipes up verse 28, uh, but but what about us? We've left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? Now, I think that's actually a pretty reasonable question to ask. Jesus has just told them that it's impossible, it's absolutely impossible for them to receive eternal life. And the disciples are there left thinking, well, goodness, if I'd known that a few years ago, I might have had second thoughts about leaving my family, my friends, my home, my work, my money, and everything behind. But look at how Jesus replies, verse 29. Yes, yeah, I know that you've left so much, I get it. And I need you to know that you will receive all that back. In the life to come, yes, for sure. But even now, you will receive that back in the fellowship of the church. But, but the thing you need to grasp is that to lose is to win. 
To give is to gain. To suffer is to be comforted. To die is to live. And to be last is to be first. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it turns the world and its values upside down. What do I mean? If Peter and his friends are going to keep on following Jesus, it's going to mean persecution, verse 30. In fact, it will actually mean death for 10 out of 11 of these disciples, martyred for their faith. They've already left their wealth behind. One day, they will be called on to leave their lives behind for following Jesus. What, What will enable them to do that? What will empower them to surrender control to the man who asks for the impossible? What it is realizing that Jesus himself has done the impossible. Jesus was the one who had complete control. Who held sovereign sway over the whole universe from a throne in heaven. And yet he surrendered that control, becoming a man weak and fragile. He allowed others to control him, and they controlled him all the way to the cross, where they drove nails through his hands and his feet. He surrendered control, so that we who've rebelled against him, we who have demanded independence, might be set free, might be forgiven. Jesus was the ultimate rich young ruler. He ruled from heaven. Not simply being a millionaire, but he owned the whole universe, everything. Yet he gave it all away to us who were poor in spirit. At the tender age of just 33, he was grieved. Not because he lost his money, but because he lost his ultimate riches, God's love itself, as he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became poor so that we could become rich. He was punished so that we could be embraced. He lost his life so that we could truly live. Have you received that life? My non-Christian friend, have you seen how little your efforts to become independent from God, have you seen how little it can really give you? Ultimately, you will lose everything in death, absolutely everything. And if you live for money, or you live for your looks, or you live for your intelligence, your, your failure to hang on to those things, it will consume you in this life. Turn to the one today you can truly depend on. Now do you see the dynamic? To grow up in this life is to become like a child again. To be set free is to depend upon the one who was bound to the cross in your place. And if we get that, if we really, really get that, we will be free to live radical lives. 
We'll be able to give away our money, our time, our energy to, to serve the poor and to serve gospel ministry in this city. We won't just give a little bit of our income. We will give as much as we possibly can because we no longer depend on it. We are no longer controlled by it. We'll be willing to look stupid tomorrow morning when we go into the office or into the classroom and and tell others about Jesus because we'll no longer be seeking to control our lives through our own personality and reputation. We'll be willing to live far away from our friends and from our families, from the things that make us comfortable, in order to reach the lost. Because we know that we have found ultimate comfort by becoming like little children and throwing ourselves into the arms of Jesus. The man who can do the impossible the rich young ruler who gave it all away for you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the rich young ruler. Thank you that you were willing not just to give away something, but to give away everything. Thank you that you gave away your life itself. You surrendered control. So that we who have killed ourselves by our grasping for independence might receive life. So that we who have enslaved ourselves from wanting to be king can be set free. Lord Jesus, help us to fill our hearts and minds with a vision of who you are. Not just in the past, but in the present and the future. Be our vision, we ask. Be the fuel for our lives. Be the center of our future, we pray. Amen.